wanna go for a ride. Hey everybody, Magnus here. Used record shops. I was 14 when I discovered the beauties and treasures of used music shops. Even back then, I was a major Led Zeppelin fan. But I already owned all their CDs. Everything. So there isn't anything left to buy anymore. Is there? Au contraire. Walk into the right record shop at the right time and you might, just might, find a, shall we say, recording of illegitimate origin. A bootlegged Led Zeppelin concert. In short, some ramrod carried a tape recorder with them into a Led Zeppelin show, and the evening's performance can be enjoyed again and again whenever you please. I, of course, frown on the practice, purchase, sale, or possession of bootlegged rock concerts and would never own or download from BitTorrent things like that. <laughs> I discovered this one shop on FM 1960 in Houston, Texas. It was in this dumpy little strip center, and I'd driven by it a thousand times, but Honestly, I hadn't really paid attention to it before. The thing about record shops that blew my hair back, even then, was how similar the vibe was to my LCS. It was a place to buy stuff, sure. It was a place to find that elusive Smashing Pumpkins Zero CD single. And I do mean the imported version with all the extra songs. It costs more, but it's worth it if you want those B-sides. Or maybe there's that original pressing of U2's Unforgettable Fire on vinyl. But it was also a place to hang out. You know? It was a place to BS with your friends. It was a, it's a place for telling absolute lies or total truths or even both in the same sentence. I mean, comics, CDs, really, what's the difference? And who cares anyway? It's all just part of the atmosphere. Ships in the night, man, ships in the night. You're not there to shop, or at least that's not the only reason you're there. And I was quick to learn that untold treasures lay hidden inside that shop full of dreams and promises, new friends, new music, and a place to belong. Or so it was back then. But it's closed down now, like so many other cool places from the glory days. Hashtag things Magnus misses. A 
I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and around here, it's all about comics, movies, and TV shows. And as it goes for this particular episode, much as I've been doing for the past... At this point, it's been over a year. Um, I'm going through a, a, a six-episode miniseries. And for those of you who don't know, my show follows a pretty simple formula. I do six episodes about whatever I want. The seventh episode, at least historically, I've used it for the... uh, I've used it to uh, record about the DC Paradox Press line of big books. I always rope Chris Honeywell from Two True Freaks in for that. Although we're... If we haven't finished the big bo- uh, all of the big books yet, we will be very soon. So, not really sure what direction that seventh episode is going to take in the uh, coming months. And then the eighth episode is always, always, always about Smallville. And then I start all over again with another six episodes, wash, rinse, repeat. And... The entire nature and structure of having six episodes dedicated to anything you want easily lends itself to having mini-series about one particular topic or theme, idea, character, or in this case, comic book creator, or, or just whatever. And so, for the past year, actually, as I say, I think actually more than a year by this point, I've been uh, uh, bashing my way through a bunch of different six or sometimes longer than six, or sometimes fewer than six episode miniseries. 
And right now I'm working my way through a, a, a mini-series that's, that I've just called, rather simply, Bendis Appreciation. And the reason for that is because I happen to believe that Brian Michael Bendis takes way too much abuse from people on the internet, and he doesn't always get the recognition that I at least think he deserves when it comes to writing badass superhero comics. And so the purpose of all of this is to hopefully balance out the ledger on that just a little bit. Does that make sense? I mean, it's I'm not trying to single anybody out in all of this or insult anybody who maybe doesn't like Bendis or anything like that. Look, if Bendis just isn't your type of writer, that's fine. I don't want you to feel like I'm I'm picking on you because I'm not. You know, I'm not shit talking anybody or anything like that. I'm just what I want to do is just talk about a comic book writer whose work I really happen to enjoy. Now, there are all different kinds of reasons why someone might not like Mike, uh, Brian Michael Bendis's work. One example is there's a, a, a class of fan out there, and I'm talking about the old school, long time Marvel fan. Because I don't use the, the, the term Marvel zombie. I've always thought that was a little bit disrespectful and, and pejorative. So I just call them Marvel fans. And there's a breed of old-school, long-time Marvel fans that read Brian Michael Bendis' work and they just think, you know, I don't know who these characters are, but these are not the characters that I grew up, you know, reading and just loving. And so, what am I going to do? Tell them they're wrong? So, you know, guys like that are not really the intended audience, you know, for these shows. The Basically, what I'm trying to accomplish is maybe get people to you know, change their opinion, you know. Maybe Brian Michael Bendis isn't such a terrible writer after all, and here are some great stories that he that, that he's written. So, if I have an objective with this miniseries, pretty much that's the objective. So, like I say, certainly it's not to call anybody out or give anybody a hard time or anything like that. It's basically a chance for me to read a crap load of comics that I just really enjoy, and, you know, who knows? Maybe some of you who at least say you don't like Bendis, maybe this will be an opportunity for you to change your mind. Who knows? Anyway, so as it goes for today, though, the comic that, or comics, I should say, the comics that uh, I've got to talk about this time around, uh, this is Secret War. Now, Marvel has released quite a few comics that use variations on the name Secret War. So I find, especially with this series, it's really helpful to specify exactly what I'm talking about. And basically, this is a five-issue miniseries. It, re- it was released starting in April of 2004, written, obviously, by Brian Michael Bendis and uh, uh, penciled and inked by Gabriel Del Otto. And also... I think painted or colored or what have you, by Gabriel Del Otto. And this is, uh, I, I guess you could call this, a lot of people have considered this to be the sort of the foundation for everything that Marvel Comics became over time, especially, you know, with the huge miniseries, things like 
or sorry, limited series, things like, you know, Civil War and Siege and all these other things. This is really the, where all of that sort of began. This was basically Brian Michael Bendis setting up what would work out to, I don't know, like seven or eight or nine, something like that, years worth of major league Marvel event storylines. And so pretty much that's that's really one of the main reasons that, uh, that I was attracted to the series to begin with. Because to give you a little bit of my history with it, I kind of flipped through Secret War when it was first coming out. But guys, I freely admit, you know, I am not a huge Marvel expert by any stretch of the imagination. I like these characters. I like most of these creators. I like these teams. I like these concepts. I like Marvel. But, triple underline this part, I am not a huge Marvel expert. There are tons of people out there who have forgotten more about Marvel comics than I'm ever ever likely to know. And so... Because of all of that, you know, I went through this huge sort of Marvel reading project. Yeah, golly, let me think. Um, this, is, this is going many years back now. This is probably like five years ago. I basically read, starting with Secret War, I read every major Marvel event story that, that came along. So starting with Secret War and then, and then going to Secret Invasion and then going to Civil War, and then going into, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, everything that had, you know, uh, come along. And I think at that point, um, I culminated with, uh, I think at that point it would have been fear itself. That's what was going on at that time. So, you know, whether anybody loves fear itself or hates it, that's what was happening at the time, and that was kind of the, I guess, the end of my little reading project there. And it was an amazing read. Now, keep in mind, I didn't necessarily read all of the tie-ins and all, you know the you know the related limited series that were coming out. I didn't necessarily read all of that stuff. Mostly, I just stuck to the main limited series that was coming out at the time. And so, there you have it. So there's an entire, I guess, world of layer and texture and nuance to a lot of these stories that I was actually missing out on. And I was well aware of that. I just wanted to read, I guess, just kind of get the high points of what had been going on in the Marvel Universe for the past, shit, what is that, like seven years or something like that? And get an understanding of continuity as it was at that time. And so that was really the main reason for reading all of that and the fact that, you know, I was kind of... I was going into a phase with DC Comics where it would be safe to say I was pretty fucking disaffected with all of the things that the DC was doing at the time. And so, as is typical, I've, I've noticed, when a hardcore fan of one universe gets a little bit fed up with them and their bullshit, they tend to jump ship and go across the pond to the other uh, comics universe and see what they're doing. So there are a lot of people out there who got seriously pissed off about goings on with civil war. And they decided, you know what? Fuck it. These are not the characters that I grew up reading. I'm going to, 
I'm going to jump on over to the DC universe and see what they've got going on there. Whereupon they read things like the, the Sinestro Corps War and Infinite Crisis and stuff like that. And came away thinking, you know what? These are some really fucking badass stories. I want to read more of this. And so I've noticed that there was a fair amount of that going on in the mid-2000s. It didn't really affect me so much, but I do know that there were quite a few people who classically had been very dyed-in-the-wool Marvel fans switching over to DC at least for a couple of months or a year or something like that until Marvel worked out whatever storyline that it was that pissed these fans off to begin with. And that's, it's just something that I've noticed. Now, I was starting to get somewhat into that myself in 2010, I believe it was. And I just wanted to read comics that wouldn't do anything to my blood pressure is basically what I'm saying here. And like I say, that all started with, with uh, Secret War. And that leads me rather neatly into the synopsis for Secret War number one. In Harlem, Luke Cage and Jessica Jones return to their apartment, and Luke pressures a group of neighborhood kids to give him the name of a local drug dealer who's been selling drugs to kids. Inside the apartment, they discover a woman who promptly destroys the apartment with a massive energy blast. Meanwhile, a thousand feet over Langley, Virginia, aboard the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, Nick Fury listens to a lengthy list of reports and learns that the attack in Harlem put Luke Cage in the hospital in a coma. Fury travels to Metro Hospital where he finds Danny Rand and Jessica sitting with the comatose Cage. Jessica demands to know why it is that Fury's come. The answer to that is, one year ago, the killer Shrike was apprehended by Iron Man and Thor and interrogated by S.H.I.E.L.D. agents Wu and Stillwell, who demand to know where Maddox got the funding for his expensive equipment. Maddox ultimately agrees to turn, turn over the Tinkerer and leads S.H.I.E.L.D. to Philadelphia, but gets killed by a trap left behind by Mason. Later, Fury searches the Tinkerer's workshop, finding, finding very little, and resorts to calling Natasha Romanoff, who has tracked the tinker, <clears throat> who has tracked the tinker at the La uh, Latvian International Airport, where he's picked up by a car with government plates. Sometime later, Fury meets with the president at the White House and delivers a report on a project codenamed Circuit, which has revealed that a number of techno uh, technological-themed criminals, including Jack-o'-lantern, Killer Shrike, Goldbug, Grizzly, and Grim Reaper. We're getting the materials from the Tinkerer, whose criminal endeavors were in turn being financed by Lucia von Bardas, the elected prime minister of Latveria. Fury recommends taking decisive action against von Bardas, but the president suggests hand handling the situation diplomatically, quote-unquote, instead. Fury storms out of the White House, explaining to Contessa Valentina de la Fontaine that the government's inaction is going to get innocent people killed and that he refused to go through all of that again. In the present day, Fury looks on the comatose Luke Cage and asks himself, what have I done? To be continued. So, this is basically 
the introductory chapter where we're supposed to start asking ourselves the same question that Luke asks uh, himself at the end of the story, specifically, just what the fuck has he done? How could goings-on with Luke Cage possibly be Nick Fury's fault? And what do you want to bet that the answer to that's going to be revealed slowly over the course of this miniseries? So a lot of this stuff here in uh, the first issue is designed mostly for exposition and basically setting up the, I guess, the basic context in which all of this stuff is going to be happening. So, throughout this first issue, I, I really enjoy the dialogue, especially between Luke Cage and Jessica Jones. Now, there's not tons of it, but what we do get... There's a way of writing dialogue between uh, between characters who are effectively married to one another. And I find it that it, it it's really the rare comic book writer who can really pull that off convincingly. Because if you listen to married people talk, or for that matter, people who are just really committed to each other, they tend to have ongoing conversations that they never really complete. They just put on pause, and then they pick it up a day later, a week later, a month later. I mean... They have, what I'm saying is they're so, sort of their own ways of communicating with each other. And you get a very good sense of that with Luke Cage and Jessica Jones, you know, throughout the first couple of pages of, of this issue. So it's important because, you know, you need, to, you need to establish the context of Luke being Jessica's man. And, you know, yeah, you can show them kissing and all of this stuff, but showing a very domesticated scene of them walking home, carrying groceries, and kind of flirting with each other, but not really, and I don't know. It's This, to me, is actually the more effective way of, of reminding readers of just how much Luke and Jessica mean to each other now. So, I guess as far as Nick Fury's participation is concerned with all of this, one of the things that I like about Bendis is that he's a little bit of a Nick Fury fanboy, to say the very least. And he never writes Nick Fury as being the sort of stereotypical, very schlocky type of generic spy. There is a human being who is speaking these, speaking these words that Nick Fury is saying. And it's, it's just not, I guess what I'm saying is I appreciate the fact that this isn't schlock. Does that make sense? Anyway, so what I'm not so fond of is the art. Now, the cover on this first issue, and really, I would say all of uh, the Secret War Limited series, the cover is actually really good. In this case, it's basically a sort of generic glory shot of Spider-Man swinging around on a web line, and it's just, it's just cool. I mean, you've seen it a thousand times, but it's it's always kind of cool to see these types of nice little pinup shots. I've, you know, I really like this. You know, the sort of narrowed eyes on his mask, and you know, the webs in his armpits. That's the way I like seeing Spider-Man drawn. So that stuff is fine, except number one, I don't really think. Except for the cover, Spider-Man's not really in this particular issue. And number two, 
the same basic sort of painted art style is also used as the art style throughout this entire issue and indeed this entire miniseries and I just don't really like it all that much. I mean, <clears throat> the the panel arrangements are okay in a lot of cases, but I don't know what the fuck happens to these artists, but it's something... The minute they start uh, painting their work, they always have to, you know, do this weird fucked up collage type stuff, and Del Otto resists that at least somewhat throughout the story, but there's something that just feels so artificial about this type of art style, you know? And I mean, I've, I, I kind of feel this way more and more now all the time when I read Alex Ross's stuff and suffice it to say, Gabriel Del Otto is no Alex Ross. And honestly, I mean, I don't think you're really setting the, the 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 bar all that high just by saying that you know so and so is or isn't Alex Ross. I mean, Alex Ross. You know, let's just say I'm not the world's biggest Alex Ross fan. Put it that way. But one of the things that happens is that you get these sort of non-existent sort of backgrounds, uh, and you see it just in panel after panel after panel all through this this uh, story. I mean, there's this glory shot of Iron Man. And, you know, he's firing off his, uh, his hand blasters and he's all swooping around the city. And, you know, he and Thor are kicking some ass. And it's just, it's fun to see this, you know, and you get, you sort of get backgrounds, you know, throughout that stuff, you know, that sequence. But in a lot of these, in a lot of these panels, it's, it's like the backgrounds have just gone to fucking AWOL. And so I don't, I, I'm just not really fond of that. So... I'm, I don't know, not my thing. So, there comes a point when uh, Fury has a meeting at the White House with the president, and he basically says, look, we need to go in there and take these sons of bitches out. I mean, it's, it's no more complicated than that. You know, the Latvian government is basically supplying our enemies, okay? That's an act of aggression, and guys, from a legal standpoint, he's got a leg to stand on there. That's an act of aggression, and... W- there needs to be some kind of a reprisal for that. You know, we need to go in there and just smash the fuck out of these guys. And so I can understand that, you know, Nick Fury would be, he'd be a little bit pissed off that he's not allowed to really respond to this, that basically the United States government is determined to treat this with kid gloves rather than, rather than actually coming up with a, a mature, rational response. And I want you guys to remember that I said that, because I'm going to be coming back to that in just a little while, all right? When we're, probably when we're wrapping this all up, I'm going to tie, tie a little bow around that. But suffice it to say, I completely understand where Nick Fury's coming from on all of this. And that leads into the synopsis for book two. One year ago, Captain America stopped a group of terrorists from kidnapping their nation's ambassador in front of the United Nations headquarters. Later, he gets approached by Nick Fury, who needs a team to carry out something secret. In Hell's Kitchen, 
Daredevil stopped a group of drug-addled teenagers from stealing a woman's purse, then left the scene when the police arrived before heading to his law office where he found Nick Fury waiting to meet with him. In Harlem, Luke Cage intimidated a drug dealer and ordered him to never sell in Harlem again before releasing the kid, after which Cage was approached by Nick Fury. And if this sounds like the ending of all of the Marvel Phase 1 movies, you're not alone. Elsewhere in New York City, <clears throat> Spider-Man is on his way home for a night to remember with his wife, but gets approached by Nick Fury in his apartment, and Fury requests that Parker accompany him on a trip the following week with no costume, no webs, and none of that stuff. The following week, Parker rushes to board Flight 456 to Latveria and discovers Matt Murdock, Luke Cage, and Steve Rogers already on the plane. Murdoch admits to him that he also knew nothing of their mission, and Parker sees Wolverine stumble drunkenly out of the bathroom and recognize Parker's scent. Wolverine makes lewd comments to the flight attendant until Rogers threatens to remove Hallett from the plane unless he does what the lady says. None of them seem to notice the dark-haired girl among them. In Latveria, Rogers is greeted at the airport by the Latverian attaché of domestic affairs, and Murdoch is approached by Natasha Romanoff, who escorts the team out of the airport along with the dark-haired girl who claims to be with the group. At a safe house, Natasha confirms that the building's clean of listening devices and opens the door for a large woman who's revealed to be Nick Fury in disguise. Fury explains that S.H.I.E.L.D. has built a case that, that proves that the Latverian government has been funding technology-themed criminals in the United States and briefs the team on their mission, which is to say, overthrow the Latverian government. Today, Fury visits Metro Hospital where he finds Jessica Jones and Danny Rand sitting with a comatose Luke Cage. Moments later, Steve Rogers arrives, attacking Fury as he in insists that he warned Fury that something like this would happen. To be continued. And, you know, it's kind of funny. There's a degree to which this issue somewhat invalidates the first issue. And I don't mean that in the sense that there are contradictions going on here. But you could read the second issue of this limited series as actually being the first issue, since, honestly, not all that much has, has really happened with the story. I mean, yeah, we get an idea of, you know, what it is that's going on with this, I, I don't know what you call it, this kind of phony coup d'etat of Latveria that, that Fury was trying to initiate. And I don't know, I mean, it just kind of, I can't shake the feeling that this kind of makes the first issue obsolete since you could start the story in the second issue and really not miss all that much since everything that you need to know is introduced technically in the second issue and stuff somewhat starts happening. And I'm not saying that to be critical because, like I say, I mean, if you read the first issue and then you come along and read this issue, technically the story doesn't progress very much in terms of, you know, Luke's stay in, in the hospital and, um, uh, you know, his coma and goings on with all that stuff. The current day timeline doesn't really move ahead all that much. We simply get a better context 
and backstory that Secret War is taking place in. So it's just interesting. And anyway, so that kind of leads me into more comments about the art. And honestly, it really is just more of the same. I really don't think this art style is appropriate for this type of story. I mean, I don't really get the fixation for, you know, a, a painted uh, a painted style of art for this limited series. I don't see what would have been wrong with a traditionally drawn and then traditionally colored art style, but apparently nobody cares what I think. But I don't know. It's uh, It's really not my thing, and... I'm really not all that into it. Now, <clears throat> my reaction to this story back when I first read it was a little bit of confusion in that I didn't really know a whole lot about Latveria and goings-on with that. I guess I... I mean, I knew as much that it was Dr. Doom's... I mean, that's really his domain. And so the fact that he's not really the, the prime minister, president, emperor, whatever of Latveria, I didn't really understand what was going on there. You know, why Why is it that he's not in charge of things over there? And anyway, so, like I say, I mean, <clears throat> I was not, I mean, I'm not a huge Marvel expert even now, but I know a lot more now than I did when I was first reading this. And this, I mean, there are aspects of this story that are easy to enjoy and get into. And then there are other parts of the story that they're a little bit more challenging. Now, excuse me while I have a drink off my Coke here. <clears throat> I'm also going to have a drag off of uh, off my e-cig, too. Oh, by the way, for those interested, I went to my vape shop um, yesterday. Or, was it yesterday? Yeah, fuck it. We'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll just say that it was yesterday. It may have been Sunday. Anyway, so went up there, and the uh, basically I needed to get some more some more juice for my for my e cig, right? And I noticed sitting there on the shelf there was a a 120 milliliter uh, bottle of Gemini's Enter the Dragon liquid, which. I love. I mean, this is my favorite e-cig liquid to be found anywhere on the open market. Uh, this is Gemini's Enter the Dragon. And again, this is a 120 milliliter bottle. I mean, it costs like almost $100. But you get so fucking much liquid with this. I mean, this really is a bargain. This is, I mean, this is enough to last probably for like a, a good like two weeks or something like that. So, I mean, if you amortize that out on a per day basis, it's really not all that bad in terms of, uh, you know, the cost and everything. So anyway, <clears throat> certainly it's cheaper than cigarettes, put it that way. So, but the thing about it is that these, these, uh, bottles of liquid, they usually come in, uh, much smaller bottles. I think like 30 milliliters or something like that. So to find a 120 milliliter bottle up there, I mean, that's like winning the fucking lottery, you know, just because of, you know, the vagaries of, you know, shipping this stuff and how that all works out, you know, on a retail level, you know, the, 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 the resellers for a lot of these companies, there's a, they have to work within certain guidelines in terms of what they can order. And then, you know, how much of, of that stuff can they order, et cetera, et cetera. And so to find this, uh, this bottle just sitting there on the shelf, you know, and it hasn't been reserved for anybody or, you know, anything like that. 
that's good business. So anyway, um, that's my, kind of a long way of saying that that is what I am vaping off of right now. This is Gemini Enter the Dragon. Uh, six milligrams of nicotine, and this is my little friend. So, anyway. So that uh, just about leads us to the synopsis for book three. During his and Mary Jane's anniversary dinner, Peter Parker experiences uh, vivid memories of a vicious battle in Latveria. Later that night, he wakes from a nightmare of that same battle and dons his Spider-Man outfit. At Mount Sinai Hospital, Fury orders Steve Rogers outside, but Steve tells, Je- tells Jessica to get away from here and keep your baby safe before instructing Rand to prepare to move Cage because too many people have seen him. Jessica steps into the lobby to call Matt Murdock. In Hell's Kitchen, Daredevil returns home to find Spider-Man in his apartment, and Parker explains that he's seeing images like a dream of a battle in Latveria involving himself... Murdoch, Luke Cage, Black Widow, Wolverine, and Captain America, even though he knows that no such battle ever happened. Murdoch ins- uh, in- insists that he's having no such experiences, and the two listen to a message that Jessica's left for Murdoch a- about Luke Cage ending up comatose in the hospital. Daredevil and Spider-Man set out from Mount Sinai, but they're attacked by Diamondback and Scorcher. The criminals discuss an impending attack moments before Daredevil attacks Diamondback while Spider-Man battles Scorcher. The criminals flee the scene and Murdoch tells uh, Peter Parker that they have to get to the hospital because something's going on. Meanwhile, outside the hospital, Rogers explains to Fury that he was ambushed on his way home uh, to his civilian life by Lady Octopus and the Hobgoblin. Daredevil and Spider-Man arrive moments later and describe the attack on Murdoch's home, and Rogers admits that exactly one year has passed since the team's secret war. Daredevil interrupts the conversation to warn them that they have to move and suggests that Fury and Rogers call for backup, and moments later the hospital comes under attack by a battalion of technology-themed supervillains including Lady Octopus, Hobgoblin, Scorcher, Eel, Trapster, Boomerang, Wizard, Goldbug, Spider Slayer, Grim Reaper, Crimson Dynamo, Constrictor, Mentallo, Scorpion, King Cobra, Shocker, Mr. Fear, and B. Arthur. To be continued. So, we get a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more uh, fleshing out of, you know, what exactly it is that's going on with this story. And I guess over and above, you know, everything else, a little bit of a, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it, you know, like full bore character study, but let's face it. I mean, this is a Brian Michael Bendis story. So naturally this is going to be a little bit of, uh, a little bit of a, of a character driven type of story. Now that having been said, one of the things that you sort of have to buy into in all of this is that Peter Parker is having flashbacks to this the secret war in Latveria that apparently he participated in and yet somehow doesn't remember. He's experiencing that coincidentally the same night that Luke Cage gets attacked and put in a coma, sacked out in the hospital, which is also the same night that Steve Rogers himself gets attacked. And so 
I realize that things like this, it, re it really does come down to parallel plot construction. And it's a convenient thing for any writer to, to deal with. It's just a nice little trick that they have in, in their arsenal. And the example I always, I always give to people is, isn't it coincidental that Michael Corleone just happened to come back uh, uh, to the United States following the war? right as Barzini just happened to be making his play against uh, the Corleone family? Parallel plot construction. Isn't it a little bit of a coincidence that Rick Blaine just happened to get the letters of transit the same night that the leader of, of, the, uh, of the French resistance, unoccupied, uh, or the free France uh, uh, resistance, swings into... Uh, swings into his nightclub. Parallel plot construction. Like I say, I mean, if you let things like that bug you, then pretty much what you're left with is a lot of stories out there that you kind of, on principle, have to start hating. Because, hey, parallel plot construction, isn't that convenient? You know, uh, what, Superman makes his public debut? Coincidentally... The, uh, right around the time Lex Luthor decides that he needs to hijack a couple of nuclear missiles. Parallel plot construction. So, I don't know. I mean, things like that, on the one hand, I can live with. But it's a little bit coincidental that Spider-Man just happens to start having flashbacks to this uh, secret war in Latveria that he doesn't even remember. Right as the Latverians decide it's time for a reprisal, you know? I don't know. I mean, that is going a little bit far, that it's so specific to the secret war in Latveria, right as Latveria decides it's time for revenge, and it's all exactly one year later, and I don't know. I mean, I don't want it to... I don't want this to sound like I'm criticizing Bendis, because the entire point of this miniseries is to kind of talk up how cool I think his comics are. But, you know, this is actually one of those things that honestly really did kind of bother me a little bit. And so I, I've got to be intellectually honest here and say that, yeah, this is something that I'm aware of. And to be fair, it does kind of bother me too. It's not fatal to anything. I'm just saying it, it kind of bothers me too. Now, as to the art, this is a little bit more interesting in that you've got these uh, characters that are... I don't know, they're actually starting to kind of relate to one another now they're talking to one another and this plays into one of uh, bendis's strengths as a writer that you know he does best with stories where the characters are just talking to each other you know and then from there of course we get into this pretty huge uh, battle between spider-man daredevil and then these uh, these techno villains here and i don't know i mean del Otto, i'm not real big on this on this approach to art or, or or what have you, but this is this is some pretty some pretty decent stuff. I, I I kind of enjoy this battle just because it has. I wouldn't go so far as to call this this art style photorealistic. It's stylized enough to be definitely a comic book, but it's still realistic enough to kind of fit with the. I guess the prejudice that I've always had about Marvel comics. In as much as it's the world outside your window, uh, 
and that much is definitely going on here. So it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's stylized enough to be recognizably fiction. It's realistic enough to be recognizably Marvel. So I'll, I'll say that about these battle sequences. Now, these kind of talky scenes where the characters are just kind of bullshitting with each other, these are less effective because everybody's scowling and, uh, and squinting their eyes, or eye, in Nick Fury's case. And, I don't know, I, this is just less effective, in, in my opinion. But, anyway, there is a nice little moment, though, where Daredevil detects that uh, the hospital's about to be, detect, uh, be attacked using his radar sense. And this is... I don't know. I mean, this is probably the entire reason why Nick Fury ever recruited Daredevil into the battle in the first place. This this works really well for me. I mean, one of the things that I, I, that I like about Bendis as a writer is that he always remembers in these massive battle scenes to give everybody their own thing to do, you know? Everybody's got something that only they can do to something that to somebody that only they can do that too, if that makes sense. So that plays for me. This is one of those things that Bendis is always really good about doing, and you can kind of figure this. The ensuing fight that comes out of this is probably going to be pretty entertaining. And that just about leads into the synopsis for book four. At Xavier's school for gifted youngsters, Wolverine enjoys a quiet moment alone until he gets attacked. Meanwhile, at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Spider-Man, Daredevil, Captain America, and Nick Fury battle a squad of technology-themed supervillains. Fury calls in an army load of gun-toting shield agents, and Daredevil interrogates Scorcher as Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, Human Torch, and The Thing arrive. The battle rages on until the sudden arrival of Lucia von Bardas, who uses the armor of the assembled tech-themed supervillains to create a massive antimatter bomb. Sue Storm attempts to disrupt the network while the heroes try disabling the individual suits of armor, but von Bardas activates an explosion that's going to destroy the entire city of New York. To be continued. So... The issue actually starts off with Logan just kind of sitting around outside of the X-Men mansion, and I just kind of dig his his internal monologue here. I can't really say dialogue, but internal monologue. He says to himself, world must be coming to an end if I'm finally getting a moment to myself. No little X-Brats, no ninjas, no Sabretooth, no mutant hunting fuckers of any kind. All's quiet in next land. Which is generally a good indication that shit's about to go down. And anyway, get back into uh, his internal monologue. He said, just me wishing I had a cigar. Which, of course, you know, you can't show anybody smoking in, in comics anymore. You can show them, you know, beating people to death with their bare hands, but hey, don't show them smoking, because that's not good for you. Fucking hacks. Anyway, so naturally, Wolverine hears what's uh, what's coming, and sure enough, he gets attacked, and 
I guess, presumed dead, but we don't really find out too much about what's going on with Wolverine in this issue. And anyway, as to this issue, this is pretty much the, uh, the big battle that the story was always sort of building toward. And my understanding of these sorts of things is that Bendis usually gives his writers, or sorry, his artists, he usually gives his artists something like two or three pages worth of dialogue and then basically says, draw anything you want, just make sure you include this stuff. But for for battle sequences, what I've what I've heard, and I don't know how true this is, but what I've heard is that he'll he'll generally say, okay, I need this character to uh, take out this character. And then later on, these other characters are going to swing to the rescue, so make sure you include that. He doesn't didactically explain everything that's supposed to happen in the fight. He basically just mentions the stuff that's relevant to his story. And then, again, just lets the artist tear it up, you know, from there. And I've called this sort of... Uh, Marvel method on steroids. And I do think there's, you know, a little bit of truth to that, you know, and one of the things that, you know, I mean, when you think about it from a, I guess from a, from a logical standpoint, one of the things that just does not make sense about comics, like when you think about it is this idea of a writer fully scripting one of these huge battle scenes like this. I mean, most writers, I think they may have uh, an intellectual command of a, a comic book page, but in terms of layouts and what looks best and what, what works best on a comic book page, especially when you get into these huge battles like this, I just don't think a writer is hes going to have the same degree of mastery over it that your average penciler will. And so in my opinion, it actually does make a lot of sense to bring the artist into the storytelling process as much as possible. And that is actually kind of, that's kind of changed the way that I view comics as a format. I mean, it bugs the shit out of me when people want to uh, compare uh, comics to cinema and say that comics should be cinematic. I don't think they should be, you know, I think comics need to be comics, but if you want to think of it in, in, in terms of the division of labor and the way that stories are told in comics, I happen to think that cinema is not a bad way of doing it. And, I, and by this, I mean live action feature film in as much as film tends to be a director's medium, whereas TV that's more of a producer's medium. And so the penciler of a comic book is arguably the director of the comic. I mean, yeah, you've got the writer who's basically supplying you with the story, but you have to defer to the director of a movie when it comes to the way that things look, you know, how dark is it outside? You know, how late at night is it? You know, what's the lighting like? You know, what do, what do, uh, what, 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 what do the costumes look like? You know, um, things like that. And those are all decisions the director makes. So yeah, it's in the script that so-and-so punches some other guy in the head. The director though is going to decide 
Is it a left-handed punch or is it a right-handed punch? Is it a jab or is it a right hook? You know, um, does the, uh, you know, does the guy bleed or does he not bleed? You know, stuff like that. So I guess what I'm saying is it makes sense to bring the penciler who he has about as much storytelling responsibilities as the writer does. And I dare say more visible storytelling. It makes sense to bring him into the storytelling process as much as possible. So again, these are all things that I've heard about Brian Michael Bendis. I'm no comic book artist. I've never worked with, with Bendis. I really have no way of knowing. <clears throat> excuse me. I have no way of knowing for sure. Excuse me while I get a sip off my Coke here. <clears throat> All right, so I really have no way of knowing all of that, you know, from firsthand experience or anything, but that's all stuff that I've heard. And assuming that's all true, I got to tell you, I kind of approve of, of that type of approach because one of the things about the division of labor in comics, especially traditionally DC comics, is that you have a writer assuming storytelling responsibilities that, when you think about it, really aren't his business. So, I don't know. I mean, it, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, you know, in the long run. Anyway, so the Fantastic Four crash, this huge battle that's going on, and it looks like they pretty much won the fight until Von Bardis uh, shows up and basically says, hey, I'm going to explode New York City real good, and where does that leave us, you know? So, uh, what the hell happens next? So, anyway... It, it it's a it's a nice effective little way of raising the stakes of things and it does actually kind of make you wonder you know i mean what exactly is the end game of this thing going to be you know so anyway i mean we know that the good guys are probably going to win but you know this does this does actually kind of play into the drama and the tension of the whole thing rather nicely so that much works for me and that leads rather neatly into the synopsis for book five, which is the thrilling conclusion to the whole thing. In the S.H.I.E.L.D. Helicarrier's interrogation room C, Commander Maria Hill questions 18-year-old Daisy Johnson regarding the incident in New York City, but Johnson suggests that Hill watch the satellite recording of the event for herself. Six hours earlier, Lucia von Bardas battles against Nick Fury, Captain America, Daredevil, Spider-Man, and the Fantastic Four, as she creates a massive antimatter bomb by networking the armor of a battalion of technology-themed supervillains altogether. The thing destroys the pier in an, in an attempt to diffuse the building's energy, or rather the building energy, and Von Bardis was incapacitated by the timely arrival of Daisy Johnson. Aboard the helicarrier, Johnson explains to Hill that she's not a mutant, but does possess powers from genetic damage handed down from her jerk of a father, which is to say Calvin Zabo, and that she used her ability to generate seismic waves to pinpoint Von Bardis's power source and short-circuit it. Following the battle in New York City, Rogers threatens to, threatens to explain what's happened if Fury refuses, but the conversation gets interrupted by the arrival of Wolverine... Emma Frost, Cyclops, and Shadowcat, who demand to know why Wolverine was attacked on the grounds of Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. Fury explains that Wolverine, like Rogers, Murdoch, Parker, and Luke Cage, was targeted due to the part he played in helping to overthrow the Latverian government a year ago today, though none of them remember taking part in such an insurrection. 
Rogers claims that there's a reason, and Fury explains. A year prior, Fury briefed the president on his evidence that tech-themed supervillains in the United States were being financed through the Tinkerer by Lucia von Bardas. The president decided at the time to handle the situation diplomatically, and Fury decided to ignore the president's orders so that he could deal with the threat directly. Because of that, he recruited Steve Rogers, Matt Murdock, Luke Cage, Peter Parker, and Wolverine and flew the team to Latveria, wherein they launched an attack on Castle Doom, wherein they cornered Von Bardas before Agent, Z Agent Johnson used her seismic powers to collapse the entire castle. In the aftermath of the battle in New York City, Fury tells the assembled heroes that his actions were the language they understand, meaning the Latverians, and explained that after the attack on Castle Doom, S.H.I.E.L.D. erased the memories of everybody involved. He defends his decision, claiming that this fight was absolutely worth dying for, and it was worth sacrificing you for. It was worth losing my job for, and it was worth killing for. Wolverine insists that he would have completed the mission without the head games, then drives his claws through Fury's chest before Agent Johnson uses her seismic powers to explode Wolverine's heart inside his chest. Before dying, Fury reveals that he was a life model decoy and, claimed that no one, and claims that no one is ever going to see or hear from him again, and Johnson explains that the real Nick Fury left the scene of all of this stuff shortly after the battle ended. Aboard the helicarrier, Agent Hill demands to know where Fury is, but Agent Johnson insists that she doesn't know. Hill calls Fury a war criminal, and, having become the new director of S.H.I.E.L.D., takes Johnson off assignment before demanding that Natasha Romanoff be found. Later, on the deck of the helicarrier, Agent Johnson receives a call and answers simply, Yes? Yes, sir. The end. So, I gotta be honest, I don't completely understand the interrogation framing device of this story because it pretty much shows us the outcome of the battle in in uh, in, in New York without really showing us the outcome of the battle in New York. I mean, it just, it doesn't make sense, you know? Uh, why are you doing this as a flashback when this previously was happening in real time? So... I don't really know the answer to that. And it doesn't really make that big a difference, you know, in the grand scheme of things. But it, it's just, it's one of those things that as you're reading all of this, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, you could have shown us the exact same pages, but just changed up the order and, hey, presto, there, it, it's, not a, it's not a flashback anymore, you know? So, I don't know. That doesn't make sense. Or here's an idea. If this entire story had been done, uh, you know, with a framing device of an interrogation of Maria Hill and Daisy Johnson, again, that would actually make some, some kind of sense too. So I don't understand why just for this one issue, it changed like that. So anyway, doesn't really make sense, but it's not, like I say, it's not really fatal to the story either. So from there, we get this kind of neat moment where, you know, the X-Men show up and this again is just... When I was recording a show with uh, Scott Rifen, this was about House of M, I told him that I didn't, until I read House of M, I didn't really understand, you know, what the X-Men are all about. You know, they're not just another superhero team in the Marvel Universe. 
they're the hated of the Marvel Universe. They're the other of the Marvel Universe, you know? And really, the X-Men is... They're not really so much a superhero team, so much as they're Charles Xavier's way of policing his own. They're basically there to make sure that mutants don't act up and make life miserable for uh, for all mutants everywhere. You know, they're basically there to to make sure that mutants don't basically just don't get hunted down and, and murdered in the streets. So <clears throat> they're sort of a watchdog group at the same time that they're also sort of a, uh, I guess like a, I don't even know what, what to call it. I guess like a defensive group. You know, they will police mutants, but they also protect mutants. And so when I realized that and why it took me so friggin' long to understand that, I've really got no idea. As a defense, I offer only the fact that I am not a Marvel fan. So put a pencil to it. But the, I guess that realization kind of helped me understand the X-Men's place in the Marvel Universe and, and I guess put it into some type of a better context. And so as a result, you know, I really do enjoy seeing, you know, the X-Men pop up in these huge stories simply because it carries a different emotional weight to me now than it did before. Whereas before they were just yet another costumed superhero team in the Marvel Universe. Now I see them as being so much more than that. So hopefully that all makes sense. Anyway, I guess as as to my overall thoughts of, uh, about this story, this seems like a very post-9-11, post-war on terror type of story where you've got the United States alternately being overly aggressive or at other times being overly diplomatic. It just seems very much of a piece with what was at the time United States foreign policy. And let's face it, guys, I mean, it's not a stretch to think that some rogue element of, say, the CIA, for example, or maybe the NSA, may decide to wage a private war of their own somewhere, specifically to strike back because of attacks real or perceived on American interests. So it almost feels like the more black opsy types of aspects of this story I don't need a whole lot of imagination in order to convince myself of not necessarily I guess the like the true story that this that Secret War obviously isn't because it's got fucking mutants and superheroes and stuff like that in it but I guess more like the truth of it and, and I get the verisimilitude of it put it that way so Again, the world outside your front door, it's not, it's not hard for me to imagine that the United States government, sanctioned or not, they would use super, superhumans, I guess, to, to do things like topple governments or protect you know, protect military bases or borders or what have you overseas, you know, that type of thing, it just seems like a very logical use of these types of people. So I don't know. Overall, I find the core concept of this story very easy to believe in. And so as a result, this is a pretty decent little story. I mean, 
it's a little bit talky. It's a little bit, I don't know. It's a little bit black opsy, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, stories like this, I, I don't know. I mean, it is on the one hand, I wouldn't want to see every story be this sort of clandestine black ops type of thing. On the other hand, I'm actually, I, I do enjoy these stories when they come along. So there you have it. Anyway. Oh, another thing about this story that actually works pretty well for me is Wolverine losing it on the on the Nick Fury life model decoy. It stands to reason that of all people, Wolverine is going to be touchy about people messing with his head and modified memories and things like that. Of all people, he's not going to react well to that, you know? So, anyway, like I say, I really enjoyed this story, lots of fun, and it was, I don't know, uh, overall, like I say, I wouldn't want every single story to be like this, but on the other hand, this was, this was a nice, fun little story, I enjoyed it, and I could totally see this being sort of the, the foundation for the next several major Mar- uh, Marvel crossovers that we would see over the next uh, the next several years. So this is a, uh, I guess what I'm saying is a sort of a, a worthy introduction to all of that. And that is pretty much it for me this week. So um, I've already gone kind of long as it is, so I don't think I'm going to have any time to, to get into feedback or anything like that. Originally, I was thinking that, you know, how much am I really going to have to say about Secret War? There's going to be time for feedback trust me on this one and uh whoops no i i I guess there's not gonna be so anyway sorry about that now i am gonna have to figure out something you know something to do with uh uh, to do as concerns uh, feedback but i guess that's that's still to come so anyway um as to next week what i'm planning to talk about at least uh and who knows but what i'm planning to talk about is uh daredevil number 26 to 31 and um this is a storyline called Underboss. This is the first Brian Michael Bendis uh, storyline on Daredevil. And uh, for those interested, I've talked to J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave about this. And he said that, you know, it's not like he's got any kind of a monopoly on Daredevil. Other people who like Daredevil are welcome to talk about Daredevil comics. And so, you know, um, I guess the... Well, I, I can't really call it professional courtesy, but whatever... The professional courtesy of all of this has already been taken care of, so don't send me any shit about this. So um, anyway, but that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
And now, a dramatic reading. What you gonna do with all that junk? All that junk inside your trunk? I'm a get, 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 get you drunk. Get you love drunk off my hump. My hump, my hump. My hump, my hump. My hump, my hump. My hump, my hump. My lovely little lumps. Check it out. I drive these brothers crazy. I do it on the daily. They treat me really nicely. They buy me all these ice, Dolce and Gabbana, Fendi and Madonna, Karen, baby Sharon, all their money got me wearing fly. Whether I ain't asking, they say they love my ass in seven jeans. True religion. I say no, but they keep giving, so I keep taking. And no, I ain't taking. We can keep on dating. Now keep on demonstrating. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. Come on.
podcast. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Thank you.